Well, I bet you can find the book of Nehemiah now, can't you? Now, let's go there again. If you're new to Meadowbrook, we're in a study through the book of Nehemiah, uh, which is in the Older Testament of the Lord. And if you can find Psalms, you can hang a left and find Nehemiah. I'm reminded that uh, Nehemiah was a Jewish man who lived among the exiles in the Persian Empire, started off in the Babylonian exile, but over years, uh, with the Jewish people being removed from the land, the Persian Empire rose along with the Medes, and they dominated. And uh, when that happened in 586 BC, the king of Persia declared that the Jewish people could begin making their way back. And It was a wave of that that began, and Nehemiah is the third of that group of people. But if you remember, he has been a trusted individual in the Persian Empire in that he is the king's cupbearer. He is the one that makes sure that the king's wine is secure and is stocked well. He is, if you will, an aficionado of the wine and a manager of the wine and presenting it to the king. Nehemiah served the king well, and yet his affection was for the people of God in Jerusalem. He had never been to this city, so we kind of wonder, how is it that he was so attuned to Jerusalem? I think he was like so many others who were scattered abroad, and even today, if they are religious, Jewish people, no matter where they are, will get on their knees or get in a bow position to pray to the Lord in a direction of Jerusalem. I think Nehemiah spent his time in prayer in that posture directed towards Jerusalem and that put in him a deep-seated love for the city that God had placed his name and where the people of God had been assembled. But then his brothers came along with others and they heard this, he heard this news from them. The remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile was in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. Now if you remember, Nehemiah received that news with real heartache. It affected him terribly. The scripture says that he, he wept, he broke down, and for days he stayed in that kind of position. And then for months he prayed and fasted before the Lord, seeking the Lord's direction on, on what could be done. And in that period of four or five months of prayer and fasting, he began to draw more readily on the redemptive strong arm of God, that God somehow would move in a way to redeem his people again and rebuild the city. And in the end of this prayer, he is asking, God, use me. And a number of us caught vision of that last week where we're saying not only can God do it, but by his grace, he will use us in his processes of kingdomness, and thereby we get the blessing of joining him in his great eternal work. So when the opportunity arose, Nehemiah spoke to the king, and he pleaded for the king to send him to Jerusalem. And the king favored the idea. And not only did he commission him to go back to Jerusalem, he provided him the resources by which the walls and the gates could be constructed along with his own house. And he would be the appointed, the official appointed governor of Judah and Jerusalem. So it's clear At the end of that text from last week, Nehemiah knew the good hand of God was on him. 
I invited us last week to think about that throughout the week. And I wonder, in your praying and in your dialogue, did you remember the good hand of God being upon you? Did he hear you say that in prayer? Now, you don't have to pray that in order for God to have favor on you. His favor is already on you. His good hand is already upon you. But it is good for us to be reminded that the good hand of God is upon us. Even when you're going through difficult circumstances like Nehemiah was, the good hand of God is upon you. And if you'll pause enough to reflect on that, he will help you to identify his goodness and his grace in your life. Now let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the providence beyond the river. Now listen, when you and I are reading texts like beyond the river, we've got to put ourselves in position to know where that is. From Jerusalem, beyond the river would be down to the east, and it would be beyond the desert, across the Jordan River, and over towards Jordan. So beyond the river puts us in that very arid place. Uh, where we see it in an iconic way when you're looking at the wilderness, the wilderness that the Lord himself spent time in, and then beyond the river. So he came to the providence beyond the river, which would be to his west, to the east of Jerusalem, and there he gave the letters to those who were leading that area. The king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. So he's crossing the, uh, the desert area. He crosses the Jordan River. He comes into Israel, goes up the mountain, down the Mount of Olives where the Lord spent time, and into Jerusalem, and there he stayed three days. We don't know what he did other than I think he prayed during those three days. He had already recognized coming through the providences that there is trouble. Not everybody is as pleased as he is that God is on, working on behalf of the Jewish people. And here's two people, Sanballat Sam and Tobiah. Whenever I read Sanballat and Tobiah, we just ought to have a collective, ooh. That's those kind of guys. I was talking to a preacher this last week who's following along with us in this series, and he said, when I was in the pastor full-time, I had a file that I labeled Sanballat and Tobiah. And anytime I got a letter that was not signed, I did not open the letter, but I put it in my Sanballat and Tobiah file. I like the idea, but I like it better that I would never get a letter that's unsigned. <laughs> I don't think I get those. Janet probably prohibits from me getting those, but I don't know. So don't waste your time writing me an unsigned letter. <laughs> uh, take it up to God. Um, so the book of Nehemiah offers us many lessons, doesn't it? I think we ought to read the Bible with a pencil in our hand and looking for Jesus. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, every part of it is about Jesus. It's helping us to discover who he is, the nature of God, the way of God, and certainly you can find Jesus right here in the midst of Nehemiah. That's a great way for us to read the Bible. 
Invite the Lord by his spirit to allow you to see spiritually and through the words to hear spiritually those great eternal truths and character about him. But there's more to be learned in the book of Nehemiah, which I'm kind of drilling in on in this study, and that is Nehemiah himself gives us an opportunity to see how we might be influencers and leaders unto the work of Christ. And so I want to concentrate on that today. You know that now God's sovereignty has been at work and he has providentially brought news about Jerusalem 1,200 miles away to a place called Susa where one of the palaces of the king of Persia is located who has a cupbearer there named Nehemiah. God has providentially made the news to deliver to that particular man. Nehemiah had never been to the city, but the news affected him so much that he began to implore God to do something. And God, please, use me. Give me favor upon this man that I might do something. He's talking about the king. But like other Jews, he undoubtedly knew that this place was unique. It was where the name of God had been impressed. It was the place where the presence of God was known, and the collective world would come and worship the Lord right there in Jerusalem. So his affection was for Jerusalem. Now, because of his favor that God had given to him and the position that he had in the Persian Empire, the king gave him his own blessing and gave him the resources in order to complete the task. So he embarks on this long, arduous journey to Jerusalem. And I'm talking about a difficult journey. It would take him probably four months on beast or on foot to get there. I want you to know exactly how far that is. It would be like you and me saying, hey, let's strike out to go do the work of God. And we strike out on foot or on donkey or on horse. And we go all the way 1,200 miles to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Who wants to go there? <laughs> Not this southern boy, it's way too north in the cold. But that's exactly what Nehemiah does. He, he goes to Minnesota, if you will. He goes to Jerusalem, and God is with him. And along the way, as he's narrow, he's getting closer. I wonder what's in his heart. Is his heart just so full of hope and joy because God has put him on a mission and God has registered his favor upon him such that the king of this, this empire has given him the resources necessary to accomplish the task? Probably so. And he's thinking about all the plans and all the things that he's got to do. That's me. God has made me in that way that I just want to think in processes. I want to think about how to accomplish and all that needs to be had. Or maybe... Maybe he has the fiery darts of the enemy coming against him, and it's doubt and disbelief. Maybe it's worry and concern that's rattling him as he's drawing near. And maybe those words came to fruition when Sanballat and Tobiah speak so harshly to him as he nears the task. I don't know what was in his mind, but I do know when he got there, when he got there, he decided he needed to spend some more time in prayer. And so he spends three days doing just that. I don't know much about Sanballat and Tobiah, and honestly, I don't want to know a whole lot. The Bible doesn't give us many details about them. We don't know the background of these guys. I think they're probably 
found in Ezra as well, where people were rising up and causing conflict as Ezra was trying to rebuild the city and bring reforms to the city. Ezra chapter 4 talks about that. doesn't mention them by name, but I think they were part of that group that stopped the progress. Sambalat is probably of one of Moabite origin who has been named as governor of Samaria. The Jews and the Sumerians always had a little difficult time after this exile period because those who were brought in, the Jewish people there intermarried with them and a lot of weird and, and wonky kind of things were thought about religiously from that group. And they were always looked down upon. Even in Jesus' day, the Sumerians were always looked down upon. I think it roots right here that you have people like Sam Ballot who are leading them, people who are not given to the things of God. They're marrying the very people of God that he had left there, the remnant that had been left there, but they're commingling. They're as what the Jewish people would say in that day, they are mongrels. They are not us. In Jesus' day, if you were going to travel north from Jerusalem and you had to go around Jerusalem, that's exactly what you did. You made your way all the way around because none of them wanted to travel through except Jesus. Remember that time where he said, I must go. I must go there. The Spirit of God had in mind that there would be a Samaritan woman waiting on him who is in great need of grace and mercy and love. And boy, did Jesus ever deliver that to her with living water. So Sanballat and Tobiah are these kind of guys that are against the people of God, the things of God. And later they would be connected with an Arab named Geshem. He's probably from the land of Jordan. And they collectively come against the people of God who are going to be rebuilding the wall. In fact, skip down to verse 19 with me. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, the servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? You're rebelling against the king. These men had no different chant than those of the people who are chanting today from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. You know what they're calling for in that day and they're calling for it today that the Jewish people would be gone, that Israel would be no more. But I can tell you that didn't go well in Nehemiah's day, and I pray to God it won't go well today. That land and that people belonged there because God determined it to be and made sure that all the world would know it by writing it into his eternal word that he has put on print for us. So we see things through a biblical worldview, not the way the world looks at it. We look at it with the Bible context. So, Nehemiah is learning how he is to stand in the, way, in the will of God when others are in his way. He's learning how to battle spiritually. Look at this first summary point that I've given you. It's in your handout. Be on the screen. Every Christian must learn to stand courageously and spiritually fight when opposed by enemies who seek to thwart God's will. Now, that's different than what happened in Ezra. I don't know what made the difference. All I know that this is different. He stands there 
with the resolve that has been given to him from God, with the word that God has impregnated life into his very heart. And he looks these guys in the eye and says, listen, I can tell you this. You have no portion right here. I'm on mission for God. This place belongs to God. The kingdom of God is here. And you and I ought to see it that way. If it's in your school, you walk with confidence. You walk as a servant of the Most High God, fully prepared for the spiritual battle at hand. And you know the enemy has no business there. The students, the people, the teachers, the administrators, you purpose them to belong to God for the glory of King Jesus. In your workplace, in your home, we ought to have that kind of mindset because we, we are bringing along the kingdom of God as Christ himself has brought it to this earth. So standing confidently in God's will, even when we face opposition, comes from kneeling humbly in prayer. If you're going to learn to stand with confidence, you've got to pray humbly on your knees. In other words, learn to stand confidently by kneeling before God in humility. If you want confidence, you've got to be humble before the Lord. So Nehemiah proves to be a, a fantastic leader. I'm talking about an inspirational leader. And it will be obvious as we continue to read in the narrative that he is a man's man. And what I mean by that, he's a man of confidence and courage and love and integrity. One in whom others will follow and fight and even potentially yield their life because they recognize this man's man of God puts God and others before himself. That's a man's man. He attempts to lead the whole group of people. But before he leads a single person to accomplish a single thing, he spends months and days in prayer before the Lord. So Christian leaders ought to recognize that our primary role is not to be full of charisma. Our primary role is not to be effective communicators or to have appearance or poise or drive about us, but instead, genuine and influential Christian leaders are to be people of prayer. They humble themselves and pray to the sovereign God and seek his heart and lead people to serve well in that. I don't mind telling you there's been a sense of conviction in the last days, as I wrote that, probably more to me than I did to you. But it is to our staff, it is to our life group leaders, it's to our discipling partners, it's to everybody who has influence in your family, your neighborhood. Genuine Christian leaders with great influence are people of prayer. Now let's pick up in verse 12. Because after Nehemiah arrives and he spends time in prayer, verse 12, it says, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one about what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring 
and to the dung gate. Aren't you grateful you don't live near the dung gate? And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that have been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. In other words, there's so much rubble, so much destruction, couldn't even stay on my animal. And I went up by night to the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gates and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Probably difficult to see, but the next slide will have a little map on that. If you were to put yourself in Nehemiah's place, that valley gate is uh, coming down from the temple Mount area coming down about halfway you'll see on the western side on the left you'll see that's the gate called the valley gate and according to Nehemiah's words he leaves that gate and he goes down south to the pools to the dung gate and then makes his way back up the Kidron Valley to the outer portion going up and he goes all the way back around and inspects the thing all night long He set out on a plan, but first after he prays, and then he sets out to do some scouting with a a few good men. He told no one what God had put on his heart. I I couldn't walk away from that that verse, verse 12, because it's intriguing to me that Nehemiah says, God put this on my heart. I think wonky might be my word for the day because... People can get real wonky when they say God put something on their heart. And so that verse intrigues me because I believe God to do that. But sometimes I hear people saying things that don't correlate with the word of God. So I want to just pause and say, okay, if you're going to say or you sense that God has put something on your heart, you ought to test that. Peter would later say you ought to test all the spirits. How do we do that? How do we know God has laid something on our heart versus Randy has laid something on our heart? Or you have laid something on your heart. Your heart, my heart, is deceptive and it is easily deceived. So how do we know this? How does Nehemiah know that this is laid upon his heart by God? I think the way we know this kind of thing is that we test it. God, does this match what I know about your character from your word? Does this match what I know about what you have said documented in your word, the Bible? Does it match? Because I can tell you, God never contradicts himself. So you can test it. What I'm thinking, does this match the character of God? Does this match the word of God? Does it it parallel that? Because if it's not, then I have not had that placed on my heart. I remember a very good friend of mine a number of years ago telling me that he was going to be divorcing his wife and that God had placed it on his heart. And catch this, he was at peace with it. 
I love that man enough to tell him, brother, God has not placed that on your heart because God has not contradicted himself ever. His word remains true perpetually. And your peace that you're feeling is your satisfaction with the sin craving that your flesh has. Test it. When somebody says or when you think God has laid this on my heart, how do you know that to be the case? Does it match what you know in the Word of God? Does it match the Bible? So Nehemiah has prayed for months, and in that praying, he has aligned himself with God. And in the midst of that praying, he's recalled the word of God. What did God say? God said after 70 years of exile, he would bring his people back. God said that he would leave a remnant there, and that remnant would rise up. God said that he would draw people to that place again. So Nehemiah knew this was the heart of God because it matched perfectly the word of God, and it matched the character of God and God had laid it on his heart in prayer. So like Nehemiah, God will be in our decisions if we align ourselves with the Bible. So yes, Nehemiah made the decision. He heard the words of his brother. He was immediately struck with anguish, immediately went in prayer, and he decided, I'm going to do something about this. God, give me favor with this man, this king, you say, well, Nehemiah decided that. I can tell you, Nehemiah was aligning his heart. And because his heart was aligned with God, God was in his decisions. So if you're up for a promotion, you're up for a move, you're wondering about this, you're wondering about that, and you're saying, well, God doesn't speak specifically about that area. Here's my advice. You get yourself in God's word on a steady way. You engage him in prayer. You align your heart perfectly with him, and God will be in the decisions you make. And you'll make the right decisions. And oftentimes, God will give you the desires of your heart because your heart's desire is to be given to God. This is the way of Nehemiah. And so though he was on official business for the king, there's no pomp around him. I, this is one of my favorite things about Nehemiah. He didn't make a big to-do about him. He was going to make a big to-do about God and the city of God. There's no grand announcement, hear ye, hear ye. He didn't even take a pay from the people. He was offered that. It was provided for him, but he didn't take that. There's no Facebook rant about how trashy Jerusalem is. He was quiet. Jerusalem appeared to be in, rum, in, in ruins and rubble, but he's just quiet. He quietly prays to the Lord and he surrounds himself with men who could give him good counsel. And they go out and take a look. Again, a summary statement. If you want to make an impact, you'll need to spend daily time with God to align your heart with his and surround yourself with a few good people to help guide your thoughts. Spirit-minded people, people biblically eccentric to help guide your thoughts. Men with men, women with women, helping each other to walk in the way of God. Then in verse 17, he said to them, you see the trouble we are in? This is to all the people there, the remnant, those who had returned. You see all the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come now, 
Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king that had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So in Nehemiah's appeal, there's a a powerful motivation that comes from this very servant-minded leader. He doesn't chide them. He doesn't deride the people because they have not yet accomplished. They, They were actually marked with failure to rebuild and restructure the city, secure the city. But he doesn't emphasize that. Instead, he emphasizes, let's do something about this. You see the trouble we're in? You see how Jerusalem lies in ruins? Its gates are burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now notice this this personal pronoun, this third person that he's using. He says, we, us, we. He's not a leader that's pointing out all the failures of the people. He's collectively seeing himself in the midst of this and calling them to action. So I want you to see just four things real quick. I'm about to move through these like we're at cruise control at 82 miles an hour, okay? Christian leaders and influencers serve best when they are empathetic, spirit-filled problem solvers. Empathetic. Rather than pointing out the people's shortcomings, he has a collective view of the problem. Look, this is what we are enduring. And then he calls everyone to be part of the solution. See it and understand it and come be committed to the resolution. He wasn't saying, hey, guys, this is what we're going to do. He's saying, look at it. We can all see this is the issue. Come, let's do something about this. He's an empathetic leader who is a spirit-filled problem solver. If you're a Christian influencer, you got to not look for the gotcha moments in other people. You have to be empathetic spirit-filled, a problem solver. And then secondly, these kind of leaders, influencers, they're eager to serve alongside others. The mantra of influential people is, come let us. Uh, Many view the role of a leader as one who is a good delegator. I would say first and foremost, She or he must be a good participator. They have to be engaged. They have to be doing side by side with the people, not directing and pointing it out, but getting in there and doing it alongside of others. I don't want to ask you to do anything that I'm not willing and I'm already doing myself. I don't ask you to give a dime unless Kay and I have already given dimes. I don't ask you to take out the trash unless you've seen me first be one to take out the trash. And it's not that I'm, I'm uh, at a boy, got it all accomplished. I can tell you, I've made so many mistakes along the way. The Spirit of God had slapped me upside the head and said, why don't you get this right? Why don't you do it with them? Why don't you join them? And so if you're going to be a good, influential leader, you've got to be one who serves alongside the people. Three, they appeal to the greater reward such as honor and dignity and glory. There's so many more that I could point out, but this is an internal reward that is greater than some external factor. Now, when you're, when you're dealing with little ones, my, 
My little grandboys have been spending a uh, couple of nights with us, and if we want them to do something, uh, we might say, hey, if you'll do this, then I'll give you that. Uh, that's just sheer out bribery. I don't mind telling you. That's what <laughs> grandparents are supposed to do. Parents can give the, the rise by hitting that reset button on their bottom, but uh, grandparents don't do that. We, we trick them <laughs> and reward them for the behavior that makes us feel good. You come sit in my lap, we'll enjoy a popsicle together. Whatever. It's an external reward that you give to them. That's about as shallow as you get, right? I mean, I'm not in that moment developing a heart, am I? I'm not, I'm not developing character in that moment. If you do this, then you can have that. That's not good leadership. But good leadership talks about the greater reward. This is where Nehemiah was. It's not just about, hey, guys, if we re rebuild this wall, then we'll be stronger. We'll be more fortified. We'll have greater defense. We'll be able to prosper. That's not what he was offering to them. It's not the external reward. It's the internal reward, that which is greater. He's saying, hey, if we do this, we will no longer suffer derision. That is, people won't be laughing at us. They won't be laughing at our God. If we do this, then this city, which is called by the name of God, will no longer suffer from the negative conversations of people that don't know him. If we do this, we will have honor. If we do this, we will have dignity. If we do this, we live in glory. And all the more, God will be seen in this way. Influential leaders help others to build character, to build the internal, to grow in that. That really is what grandparenting and parenting is all about, developing character. I can't help but think about this building. I'm probably for the rest of my days going to talk about this building as an illustration because you and I knew we needed a building for which we might worship in. The external benefit would be, hey, let's build a building so that we'll have a new facility to worship in. And I don't mind telling you, that's a pretty good gig. I love preaching in this building. I love singing and worshiping in this building. I love to come into this building. And all the things that connect it, I love everything about this thing. But I tell you what prompted us to do it in the way we did it. We raised $8.6 million for this structure so that it might be paid for when we walked into it, paid in full. In fact, you gave over that. We were able to do about a million dollars worth of renovations to the contiguous buildings. Now, why would it that people would give so sacrificially? I'm talking about... Many of you gave incredible sacrificial gifts to this place. It changed your life for the period of time that we were raising money. It changed the way which you lived life because you were giving so much to this. I'll tell you why. Because we said, let's do this in a way that God is honored and glorified. Let's do it in a way so that generations down the road who don't even know us by name would look back and say, I don't know who those people were, but obviously they have had great faith in God. To God be the glory. 
that motivated you. Because that's a greater benefit to your dignity, honor, and glory, and most importantly, to God's. And too grateful the Spirit of God moves us in that kind of way. So Nehemiah had this greater motivation reflecting with the people on this city and its origins and how it was going to have kingdom impact for, for decades and generations to come. And listen, they didn't have an idea like you and I do now. The millennial kingdom of Christ Jesus is going to be right there at that place. The very temple that is in heaven now is going to come down right there to that place. What an amazing, amazing thing. Nehemiah was making the appeal for that. And then finally, they call people to focus on God, his will, and goodness and grace. The focus is not going to be on them. It's on God. This is God's city. You're God's people. This, this temple is belonging to him. So he's pointing them in the right position, which brings me to that very last summary. Christians should prayerfully see the world through the eyes of Jesus. Be eager to respond to brokenness with his grace and influence others to join his work of renewal for his glory and their good. That's what Nehemiah was doing. It's what I'm learning as I'm reading about Nehemiah. So our call is to be like Nehemiah, to pray, to seek God, to trust his goodness and his word, to move in faith, to rebuild that which we see is broken, and urge people to join us as we do this together. So what are you seeing through the eyes of Jesus around us? Think about this for a moment. Are you seeing the spiritual lostness of countless people around the world? Or maybe you're seeing it in your own neighborhood, your school, your workplace. Are you seeing Christians stunted in their spiritual growth in need of somebody to invest in them as a discipler? Are you seeing the hunger, the loneliness, the homelessness, and the brokenness of people in our community? Do you see churches that have plateaued or a decline in their numbers of baptisms and people? Are you seeing marriages and families that are struggling? Are you seeing the rampant addictions that destroy people and their lives? Brokenness is everywhere, and if God will allow us, we will see it through his eyes, and with great grace, we will rise up and say, come, let us. What is that? For Nehemiah, it was a bunch of rubble for you and me, it's rubble that we see all around. But we can stay in our little safe, protected places. Or we can rise up with the heart of God. Stand with courage and conviction that God himself would lay something on our heart and provide us the resources to do something about that. That's my prayer. Let's take that and frame it. Lord, we take those words and frame them to you in the best way we know how to say you're seeing brokenness. You're seeing things, obviously, Lord, that we have not 
spent time looking, we don't see. So, Lord, would you help us to nurture a deep prayer life, to know your word, to know the power of your presence in us, to see with spiritual eyes and to hear with spiritual ears and and recognize what is breaking your heart and thereby, Lord, causing us to be brokenhearted and weep and mourn and pray and fast and then to rise up and do something about that. Put it on our heart, I pray, to the glory of Jesus and to the good of people. In Christ's name, amen.